0: Welcome to Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting. And now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. Thomas More is the author of Care of the Soul, a New York Times bestseller for almost a year. He then has written 30 books on soul, spirituality, and depth psychology, and he's traveled the world teaching and speaking. He's also a psychotherapist and an avid musician. In today's episode, we talk about the practice of emptiness and how this concept can support our well-being as well as our effectiveness in the world. We talk about the practice of spaciousness as an antidote to stress and anxiety, and the ways that emptiness can support our work and ambition to achieve everyday and important goals and aspirations. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, I'm very pleased to be here with Thomas Moore. Thomas, good morning, and it's great to see you.
1: Well, hello. Really nice to see you too, Mark.
0: It's funny that we were just saying that, though we've never, I don't think that we've met in person. If we have, it was very briefly, but I feel so connected with you through your best-selling book from many years ago, Care of the Soul, and which was a wonderful book and I know life-changing book for you and for many others.
1: Yes, it completely Changed my life. It opened up so many doors, places to go and teach and speak, and I don't know, so much. And also a way to start making a living. When I published Care of the Soul just before that, I think I remember once having $4 in my pocket, and that was it. I never really was interested in making any money. But then I had a daughter at the same year that Care of the Soul came out. And uh, I needed to be able to support a family, so in, in so many ways, that book was just a, a, a miracle of a gift to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, kind of amazing, right? It's a little bit like winning the lottery, too. Yeah, uh, not then and now as well, right? There's so many books, but there is something I think about the title of that book, uh, yes. the cover of the. It, it was a be- beautifully designed book. Michael Katz and I, who I know is a mutual friend and was the agent, we used to send book covers back and forth. Somehow I used to get involved in helping people design book covers. And Michael, I thought, was like like the best of the best at that. And that book had a beautiful cover to it.
1: Yes, we have tried. I say we, my wife, who is an artist, she and I have tried over the years with all the books. It's about 32 books now. And uh, we've tried very hard to uh, have covers like I remember one good covers i remember one time i wrote a book called the soul of sex and uh, to try to do something with that cover we got someone to do some uh, hand-drawn calligraphy for the time mm-hmm. just to have that on the cover right. but i've not succeeded every time because some publishers just insist on their computer-driven in-house artists and, yes just unfortunate from my point of view.
0: Yeah. Well, I've been I've been really appreciating reading your newest book, The Eloquence of Silence. And actually, I don't think I've sent you my newest book, which is called Finding Clarity. And actually, I have a whole section on the Heart Sutra and emptiness, kind of un- unpacking it. But I think uh, uh, where I want to start is talking about I was just telling you a little bit of the story where I was teaching and I was describing, kind of defining what I mean by emptiness. And the question that I got asked with such great sincerity was, what does emptiness have to do with our daily lives? and i would love for you to say something about what you mean by emptiness in whatever way you want to and yeah what does it have to in what way is it pertinent and i would say essential but but how do you think about this
1: well this book that uh, that we're talking about of mine now about emptiness has 30 stories and i just comment on the stories and i feel when i read it over that there are 30 different ideas about emptiness 30 different kinds of emptiness mm-hmm. so it's as though it's not as though emptiness is one thing it, it appears i think it appears in everything everything we do everything that goes on emptiness can be a part so it's different each time for example uh, it could be something very concrete like having a room in your house that's not too full of things mm-hmm. that would be a kind of emptiness it's very physical But I think it's still within the range of the idea of emptiness uh, or whatever you want to call that. And uh, I think that another common way for me, one of the most common things, comes from Christianity. They have an idea of emptiness, too, called kenosis. And the idea there, the theology of that, is that Jesus says all the time in his teachings that not—he says, not my will, but my Father's will. And it's that emptying of one's will that I find happens almost every day, where there's one thing I want, and then something else, the world or somebody wants something else. And I feel that I have to say that, I have to get into kenosis, I have to say okay, not my will now, but uh, I don't need to do what I need to do. I can let that go and do what someone else wants. I think that's a very ordinary, everyday kind of emptiness that we all experience.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of, I think one of the things that how I answered that question when I was asked was, when we're truly listening to another person, we have to let go of whatever letting go of our own ideas are. We have to empty out of whatever our biases and thoughts are and now we we may then need to bring them back in as a, to think how do how does what this person is saying how does it how am i screening it or evaluating it but at first, but can i truly be really open to listening to what this other person is saying harder than it sounds this i mean i think of And maybe we can get into this emptiness as a practice, as something that we, again, like What even what you were just saying, right? It's easy. Someone comes up with their own idea or something happens and it's easy to get frustrated or demand that, no, I have, but no, how do we practice with this and how important and essential it is, this practice of emptiness?
1: And I think if you have this daily practice of emptiness and the ordinary things of daily life, then the really big challenges are a little bit easier. For example, if you if you find out that you've got an illness, that a disease or something that you hadn't suspected, that really requires some emptiness to let it to accept it in some way. <laughs> I don't know how if that's the best word, except, but to be able to be with that illness
0: mm-hmm. in a
1: way that you are not destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. And you have to give over. It. You have to give over to it somehow.
0: Yeah, in, in Buddhism, there's many ways in to talk about emptiness. But I think of a classic definition is the combination of a selflessness, right? Not any sense of a s- stable, solid self, and impermanence that the way that we think of time is, um, again, the, that past, present, and future are practical but are made up, don't really exist. So this, and that when you put those two, basically I guess it's like time and space, or time and self together, you get that's one, one definition, one way to think about this practice of emptiness.
1: Yes, I, I, it reminds me of a story. I don't remember if I put it in the book or not. But when I, when when I was teaching at a university about twenty five years ago now, um, one of my fellow professors in the religion department I was in was Fred Strang. Have you ever heard of him?
0: I'm not familiar with him.
1: Fred was a was a professor. He was a, an intellectual educated at the University of Chicago. And he wrote his dissertation there on emptiness. And he wrote a book called Emptiness based on his dissertation. Fred was a very big, very big guy, very strong and strong in his voice and everything he did. He was just a strong character. He and I used to play racquetball once a week. And we'd be playing and we'd really get tired and we'd get a short rest. And I'd always ask him, Fred, tell me what emptiness means, because he was kind of considered the world's expert on sort of an intellectual approach to to it. And he would say, dependent co-origination. And I said, fine, Fred, would you please tell me what that means? And he would try to explain it to me. This happened numerous times as we were playing racquetball. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that when we played that he couldn't lose. I mean, if he lost a game, he would just be in a terrible mood. And I thought, that doesn't look like emptiness to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> he's, he's not dependently co-originating there. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Well, 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 now we're getting into some practical, yeah, I'm fond of saying things like, you know, when people hear about emptiness or even mindfulness or sacred or whether it's Buddhism or Christianity, somehow people associate that, I think, or one way it can make people a concern that people can have is a maybe a lack of ambition or a lack of energy or a lack of effectiveness. So now I want to I wanna talk a little bit about how. In fact, again, I would make a strong argument how emptiness or right selflessness, timelessness are actually support our effectiveness. Or even going back to your example, right? So your friend, ambitious, compet- competitive, right? Competitive, the desire to win. I'm very ambitious. I love to win. I love to play sports. And... I think that the role of emptiness is that we can completely want to win. We can completely, without any resistance, but if we win, great. If we don't win, great. right? So, and that to me, but, but also I think of when it comes to, I often use the example of, to me, Martin Luther King is a beautiful example of someone who ambitiously, with tremendous energy, skillfully was wanting to end racism. But there, when he was at his best, there wasn't a shred of anger or blame. And to me, he I sometimes think of him as an example of someone who was practicing a kind of selflessness or emptiness with great ambition.
1: Yeah, I'd agree completely. I, he's a He's an excellent example, and model where he came from, I don't know, to be able to have that that uh, those personal qualities of being able to face impossible odds and keep at it too, and not seem to be undone by failure or what looked like failure, but to be able to keep his equanimity through it all and uh patience, and be able to model for other people nonviolence, mm-hmm. that probably nonviolence is an, could be another facet of kind of an empty thing in his uh, work, because it, it maybe probably a lot of us would be tempted to just act out of our anger and rage and frustration mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. keep that calm that he had,
0: yeah, yeah, and this is something that i I notice in when I see business leaders, CEOs, C-level people who often are under great strain to, to perform. In high school, I was, I was captain of my high school wrestling team, so I was very competitive. I, I wanted to win, and I didn't want to lose, but I distinctly remember two very quick memories. One was a match where I was winning, and I, looked, I happened to look at the clock and saw that there wasn't much time left, I clamped down, so run out the clock, I won, I got up, and I felt terrible. Mm. And I thought, it's not just about winning, it's about how I'm performing. And the other thing that I, that other thing that brought me, I think, to practice was, I noticed in some way, even though I don't think I was very aware in my When I was in high school, I was pretty asleep, but I did notice there was something unique about the best wrestlers. The good wrestlers seemed really caught by winning and losing. The best wrestlers, there was something about them that it was like some sense of emptiness, some sense of, not that they didn't care, but they were beyond, their self wasn't so invested in winning and losing, which seemed to give them a superpower. And that was partly what brought me to Zen practice, was I want that superpower. I'm completely caught by winning and losing, and I wonder what that's about.
1: This reminds me of that little book, Zen and the Art of Archery, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's such a model for uh, being able to uh, do something like any sport. Maybe you might say that from that point of view, sports could be a really good place to practice emptiness. Mm -hmm. It's all like it's all a model for life in any sport. And to be able to handle that, to be able to bring some emptiness into it, it can make you a better player, whatever it is you're doing. I used to give that book to uh, football players at the university where I taught and just said, I would tell them, I'd say, I'll pass you in this course if you read this book and write me a note telling me that, assuring me that you had read it, you know, Mm -hmm. let me know. And uh, because I thought that's something that would uh, be a doorway for the ordinary athlete who is caught up in, in literal competition and not really understanding how it could be done in a more empty way.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Do you have i um, I'm curious what your, do you have a favorite story about emptiness from your book or any place? I, I, I like the story that you told about your competitive emptiness <laughs> e- expert.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard. When I think of that now, I think of all those stories. There so many. I'll tell you one I like. It's a story of uh, one of those Nasruddin stories where he, he's, he must be in London and he gets on a double-decker bus and goes up to the upper level. And then he comes down and the conductor says, is there something wrong? And he says, there's no driver up there. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's, that's really a pretty good story, I think, of, of emptiness. For many reasons. One is, of course, in my commentary, on it. I talk about how people dream so often of being in cars and buses and trains and things. Vehicles are a very common dream image. In my therapy practice, I work with dreams always, every time. So I'm very familiar with all these different themes that come up. And uh, and so I I feel that uh, it's a deep thing about who's driving. You know, in a car, like someone tells me they, they're in a car in a dream, and I say, Well, where are you in the car? Mm-hmm. That's really significant. Well, you're driving, or I'm in the back seat, or I'm in the front seat. Mm-hmm. All of that makes quite a difference when you think about the image of it and you explore it deeply. Well, in this story, up there in the upper level, which is usually where people think of control coming, they pray to God up there, and they mm-hmm. look up and say, uh, What does he want now? It's it's similar. That uh, can we stand being in a place where there's no driver?
0: This is kind of amazing. You just reminded me about a dream I had this morning.
1: Oh my gosh! So I'm going to
0: get some free therapy here from you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny that I have been, you know, I think preparing for this conversation. It's been meaningful for me to get to have this conversation with you, and the dream that I woke up with. This morning, literally, I was, I think, in a therapist's office or some teacher or mentor. I was climbing a rope and I was at the very top of the rope at the ceiling and couldn't go any further. And I was searching for answers. I was searching for clarity, for something. And the thought I had right before I woke up from this dream was no one has it. I have to figure this out by myself. Hmm. or at least not that, that there is this answer I'm searching for is doesn't exist outside of me in some way and i'm feeling the similarities of that dream and what you the story you just told about being at the top of the bus and there's no so in a way i felt like my dream was i was at the top of the bus and there was no driver yeah <laughs> nobody there nobody there there's no answer there's no answer there right? that's right and you don't have the most
1: substantial means of getting up there either. A rope is not—it's pretty basic and slender, so that might be a problem too. You need might need a little more
0: support yeah, Try a ladder, see what that's like. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, I was—it's funny. In my youth, I was pretty adept at rope rope climbing. Was something I really enjoyed. Really, okay. I can remember being scared. You know, that was probably middle school, where we had to do our rope climbing to the top and to the top of the gym ceiling, and it's like, oh, I could do this.
1: Well, you see, what you've just I- introduced that is your childhood. Yeah, and there off we go. Right. right. Well, we find yeah. a lot more richness to that image, certainly, by discussing that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there's. Yeah, my childhood. And the therapist, and yeah, rope, or yeah, maybe I did need a la- maybe a ladder would have been would have been better, or a bus.
1: <laughs> a bus might do it. Yeah, try that. <laughs> it's a wonderful dream. Tempting to I'm tempted to spend the next hour just talking about it, but
0: <laughs> that, that, that would be taking advantage, which will yeah, I it,
1: would, it would, yeah, <laughs> well, on my part anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I wonder about other ways that you. How this shows up in your life, Thomas, this practice. Again, I think of it. And it's interesting too that you're the relationship of silence, right? That you've titled your book about silence, and yet it's it is about silence, but it's about it's about emptiness as a as maybe the container of yes. silence. I think emptiness can sometimes be silent, but maybe not too. Emptiness can be loud.
1: Well, definitely. I'm a musician. I think I understand that. Yes, I. the fact, the mere practical fact is that trying to look for titles, if you use the word empty, it's so easily misunderstood. People would think that's a terrible thing to have an empty life. Mm-hmm. It's, you can't put a footnote on your title, so it's a problem. And the other way to get a title is to see maybe in a collection of stories, one or two stories that have a theme that stands out. and You make that your title. So right. that's one. Another way to look at it, though, the way I look at it is that silence doesn't have to be about sound. I lived as a Catholic monk for a number of years. And I felt when I look back on that experience that the silence we had was more visual than sound. Like we had... You know, spaces that were not cluttered and the place for everything and uh, the architecture tend to be to support silence. So that it itself is the architecture and furnishings seem to be silent. So that's another way I look at it is that there's a silence that's not quite so literal about sound, but it's the environment in which you live.
0: You know one of the first things that you said when I asked you about emptiness was you pointed to the space in the room, and it's actually one of the practices that I find I work with with leaders who are feeling tight or crowded or tense and to experiment by noticing the space notice the emptiness literal literally often we are so trained to just seeing objects. And I think this is what you were saying, that we miss that, like I'm in a room that's primarily empty, literally. I mean, it's just I'm sitting in the middle of a room and there's a few objects here and there, but primarily there's space. And, and again, one of the practical ways, I think, to take what seems like this difficult intellectual idea of emptiness and make it how we can live it and practice it is through a kind of spaciousness, through experimenting with even just noticing, noticing the space. Or this is one of the things I think that meditation offers is to be aware of the maybe far and few between spaces in between one's thoughts, like to focus on the spaces instead of the thoughts or the spaces in between in-breath and out-breath, like, wow, how so simple, but pretty powerful if we can bring our attention to these empty spaces.
1: Yes, one of the ways I do that, it's quite different from what you're saying, although I understand that very well, having been a monk myself and having had done a lot of that kind of very close practice, but uh, what I think of these days is, if I'm going to a hospital or a doctor's office, I'm. I, I just recently went to uh, to get some blood, have some blood tested, and there's this television set up at the ceiling with a tape on it or something. So, or some, you know, it wouldn't be taped today. Probably some feed that's coming through constantly. So I'm sitting there waiting to be treated or to get the blood, and I may have ten minutes. That I'm waiting. And I take it as a challenge to be there in an empty room, even though the television is there. I really don't even know how to turn it off. And I still think it's probably what I would do. It's not my way to just go up there and turn it off. But, but I do see it as a challenge to be empty. And I, I sit there and I ignore the sounds of the television and kind of create my own space. And I've, I find those moments like that are really good for practice because they're a bit of a challenge and you've got time on your hands. How often in your life do you have time to do something like that? So that's what I do. I look for the those moments in ordinary life that allow me time to practice.
0: I can't help but bringing in one of, I, I ran a greeting card company for years and I'm, I'm a professional quote collector. And wh- one of my favorites in this realm is, um, if you learn to enjoy waiting, you don't have to wait to enjoy. In, in, in a way, it's exactly, I think what you were just saying is, w- whether you're right waiting, in the doctor's office or in traffic, or I like to encourage people to show up early for meetings and appointments and enjoy the space, literally enjoy as opposed to the usual rushing to get there on time and the stress of that. Practice, practice so in a way it's a again, practical ways to integrate this um, concept and practice of emptiness in our daily lives. Right. Thomas, anything you'd like to offer or say about anything as a way of wrapping up?
1: Well, could I could I tell one more story that please, uh, is please, the, yeah, and go from there? I think it's one of the first stories, if not the first one. I'm confused because I haven't even seen the book in print yet. I just have it on my computer, <laughs> but anyway, this, there's a story. Another Nasruddin story where he uh, he's just there as in a village. He's kind of a teacher, spiritual teacher in a village in and, and many of his stories. And this uh, student of his comes to him and says, I'm going to have to go away. I have to leave the town and I won't be back for a long time if I ever get back. And you have been so important to me as a teacher. And he says, I've noticed that you have this ring on your finger that I keep looking at when I come to see you. And I thought that if you would give me that ring, then when I was away, every time I looked at my hand, I would see your ring, and I'd be reminded of you. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, this fellow, this character in all these stories, Nasruddin, or Nasruddin, I don't know how to say it, he is somebody who likes his own possessions. He doesn't like to give things away. So he says, I have a better idea. He said, why don't I keep my ring? And then when you're away, every time you look at your finger and you see that there's no ring there, you'll think of me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a great story. That's one of the best stories of emptiness I know. Of. <laughs> because... Because it is so typical for us to need something, need something all the time. And this story tells us that nothingness can give us what we need. Nothing that is there can be more important than anything else, even emotionally. So when when a person is not there, if you haven't seen your friend in a long time, if so many things if you instead of re, instead of demanding mm-hmm. that you get something that you take the very emptiness the very thing that's not present you take that as your a gift as your way of connecting and of still being uh getting what you're asking of life mm-hmm. i think that's a great mystery and a wonderful one yeah. uh, so i like to keep that story in my mind all the time
0: yeah no thank you i love that story and I'll share with you the image that came up in my mind as I kind of took in that story was I was thinking, uh, and, and I don't know how this is as related as I'm thinking it is, every time you look in the mirror, it's an opportunity to see your entire life, right? That you can see yourself being born, all of the selves that you were, and you could also see all of the yourself getting older so that it's that story to me is like kind of kind of playing with time and space and i think essentially that's the the great practical and mysterious teaching right of emptiness is to be able to play to re, literally to play in the realm of time and space is a kind of freedom
1: yes absolutely we don't give ourselves that freedom too much yeah we demand, we demand that it be the way it always is or the, the way the world thinks the way everybody thinks instead of maybe there's also a bit of a twist there you know the twisting it so that you're not just thinking the usual way if only I had something here I'd remember you would mm-hmm. say that with well if I have nothing here I'll still remember you <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I've been enjoying uh enjoying reading reading the stories in your books. Your book from, you know, from Alan Watts to Suzuki Rishi to James Hillman to Nagar- Nagarjuna is the great first, first second century Indian philosopher, beautiful writings on emptiness. and.
1: Can I tell you another one before you? Stop? Yes, please. I can't stop. See, I just love these. There's a, another great story of Nagarjuna where he goes out hunting lions and he uh, he comes back from the hunt and people say, well, how many lions did you shoot. And he says, none. Well, how many did you try to get? And he says, none. Well, how many did you see? And he says, none. Well, that was not a very good day. He says, no, it was a great day, because when you're hunting lions, none is plenty. (laughs) Well, there's something, too, about that, that uh, I think about failure is emptiness, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. I always say this about the life of the soul that failure and loss give your life soul as much yeah. as anything. Yeah, yeah. But, and he understands that when you're hunting lions, none is plenty. Right. So I I think of that that line many times in my daily life. Yeah. If I if I if you go to a doctor and they you come back and they say, well, what did he say? They didn't say anything. Well, they'd say, well, that's too bad. And I'd say, no nothing is plenty.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a whole nother, we could do a whole nother episode on failure and disappointment and how it, right, it feels on at first blush like something empty, and yet there's so much richness, richness but, in our failures. even though We don't want them, but there they are, and they enrich in us.
1: Absolutely, yes. Well, Mark, I don't mean to keep us going forever here, but I really enjoyed the conversation. So me too, me
0: do. too. And I want to just wish you much, much success and, with, and great fullness right within the emptiness of your life and our lives. And thank you very much. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, I, I wish you a great success. I mean, a resounding success with one of your books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
0: Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.